I can invite you to remain standing for our scripture, which comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 48. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. Good to be here with you all this morning. I want to begin by thanking uh, all of you who sign up for Meals on Wheels and who are part of the delivery team. Uh, I should have checked my text messages during the announcements because Catherine texted me to say the schedule was full for next week, or for not next week, but the next week. So for all of you that have signed up, thank you very much. And for those of you that regular help with uh, Meals on Wheels, we appreciate you so much. Also, I want to thank our kids' choir. What a great job they did tonight, or this morning. Uh, singing together, and what a great song as they shared with us a little bit about Christmas. It's such a good thing for us to be here today, and before I begin, I want to invite you all, if you haven't, or if you don't have any more, uh, to please remind you to pick up invitation cards following the worship service if you don't have any. I'd encourage you to pick one or two up, carry them in your wallet or your purse, and make the invitation. Uh, if you think about it, the Advent season and the Christmas season is a perfect time for us to invite people to church. Because whether society likes it or not, what is Christmas about? It's about Jesus. And so whether uh, you're singing about Rudolph, Frosty, Clark W. Griswold, or Buddy the Elf, um, you know, everything still turns to the one that was born in the major, and everything about this season is about Jesus Christ. And so now is a natural time for us to invite folks I'd encourage you to invite someone for the cantata next Sunday. Uh, we have one of two or any one of our Christmas Eve services on Christmas Eve. It's just a great time for us to make the invitation. It's also a great time when people, whether they're conscious of it or not, uh, the story of Jesus is getting out as we celebrate Christmas. And so now's a great way for us to, and a great time for us to help connect people um, to this church or if they say they have a church and they're not going, well, it helps them to get back to their church as well. That's still a victory. So this morning, as you all know, as the second Sunday of Advent, in this season we're looking at some of the most familiar passages in the Gospels that tell us about the birth of Jesus. And my hope as we read these passages is that uh, we will take the time to read these familiar words as if, were, as if they were unfamiliar to us. Too often we allow our familiarity of a story to... Uh, to, to blur the words that we're reading. And so sometimes what that means is we skip parts or we skim parts that keep us from truly seeing what God is telling us in terms of the Gospels. Whether you're reading from Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. And so reading the Gospels is much like reading a familiar book series that we read often. Sometimes we find ourselves skipping things or other times we find when we reread something and we're reading it with fresh eyes, we find that we find, are, are making connections that possibly the first time we read it, we missed altogether. And so the puzzle or, or the, the chain of what we need to know or what we need to find out, or in terms of the Bible, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to things that perhaps we missed before. And so we might be reading something that sets the stage for something that happens later. I mean, that's how it is with the scriptures. If you think of, of all of the words of the prophets of Isaiah and Zechariah and Malachi and Micah and Nahum and all of these others, that the words that they say point our eyes to Jesus. And if we don't know that, 
Perhaps the first time we read them, they don't mean anything to us in terms of Jesus. But then as we read them later, knowing about Jesus, they show us that Jesus is a fulfillment of so many things that God has promised in the way that God has chosen to be present with us in his Son. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've read two familiar passages of Scripture to help us set the stage for the birth of Jesus. The first week on November 26, which I know is a week ahead of Advent, we read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, where Zechariah appears in the temple to light incense, and the angel Gabriel meets him at the altar and tells him that his wife is going to have a son. This son is the one that is going to prepare the way for the Messiah, and the angel says to call him John. Zechariah doubted. He says, "Why? how can she become pregnant? She's never been able to conceive. And because of his doubt, his voice was silenced until the child was born. In Zechariah's story, what we saw is that God can and does allow for our questions. That if you have questions of the faith, if you have questions about what is happening, if you, you know, ask God questions, he's not going to set you aside. God's not going to cast you aside. God's not going to use you. And God's not going to use you to help, or God's not going to stop using you to help proclaim the message of Jesus and the life that Jesus offers us. God can and God does still use us. Even when we have doubts, even when we have questions. And none of those things disqualify us from being used by God. Last Sunday we looked at Matthew 13. It's a portion of scripture where Jesus is questioned and he's challenged by the people of Nazareth. And while Jesus is being questioned, we looked at, used that passage to look at the story of Joseph, to see how, how God chose this man to be the earthly father of Jesus. After learning of Mary's pregnancy, Joseph experienced his own encounter with God in a dream as he was told to take Mary as his wife, and as he was told that the child within her would be the Son of God. And so as we saw in Matthew's Gospel, it's said that after Joseph woke from his dream, he got up, he went, And he did what God told him to do. He was faithful. He was faithful in taking Mary to be his wife. He was faithful in taking the, the child to Egypt, placing him out of the reach of Herod. He was faithful in the way he responded to God in multiple opportunities in his life and in the way that he poured himself into Jesus. In the way that he lived and in the way that he practiced his faith. Joseph was faithful, and we saw that in Matthew 13 when the uh, people of Nazareth are challenging who Jesus was and what he is, not by saying his name and not by recognizing who he is, but by saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? Joseph was faithful in claiming and in following what God had chosen and God had selected for him to do. So today we're reading from Luke 1. This is a portion of scripture that is called Mary's Magnificat. It's a celebration, a song, a hymn of praise that Mary sings when she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. As you all know Mary's story, Mary lived in the small town called Nazareth in the region of the Galilee. If you think about it in biblical times, Nazareth was really an insignificant town in the time of Jesus. It was almost like what we would call here flyover country, which we know because we live out in flyover country. Nazareth is uh, one of the small towns anywhere that you and I can drive to. And, uh, you know, at election time, you find a reporter standing there trying to figure things out. Or if you need to go and get something, they have a gas station. 
that also doubles as a small convenience store, and that's pretty much it. That's Nazareth. I mean, for us, the gas station's Allsup's, but anyway. Um, without naming any specific towns or, or anything, you all know it, and we know it. But I think it helps us to get framed that idea of what Nazareth was in biblical times, in the time of Jesus. It was not a, a serious town like it is today. If you go there today, it's a pretty sizable town in the region of the Galilee around, you know, in the northern part of Israel. And so in Mary's time, if you wanted to go anywhere, you walked the six kilometers. I looked it up on a British uh, map, obviously, uh, to the growing and bustling city of Sepphoris. So you can see on the map these two locations. Sepphoris was a Roman city. And so what that means by it being a Roman city is it means it has Roman baths, it has a theater, it has a forum, it has a main square, a marketplace, a street that everything runs along. Uh, I believe in biblical times there was a Roman administrative official that lived there. And so there was a lot of things that were happening in this near community. And so all of the craftsmen and women and the folks that, that worked would travel to, to Sepphoris to, to work each day, Sepphoris. And so they would make that walk, and they would work. And if you wanted to go somewhere else, you could go to Capernaum, but you'll see Capernaum's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and so, you know, that would take you days to get there. And in biblical times, people didn't just go visit like we go visit. Unless you were doing something for work, or unless you were making the annual pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifice. That was it. And so folks live their life each day. They work to provide for themselves and for their families. They engaged in the worship of God, and then they waited. They waited for God to come. They waited for the Messiah to deliver them. They waited for the Romans to be displaced, for the Romans to be uh, sent out, for the promised reign of the kingdom of God to be a reality. There's a reason. If you look in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when Jesus meets a man named Nathaniel, what does Nathaniel say when he hears about Jesus? He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? There's a reason when we talk about Nazareth and, and, Naz and Nathaniel has this reaction. Because the people of Israel are almost at a place where it's hard for them to look ahead. For 400 years they'd been waiting. For 400 years God has not sent a prophet to speak to them. For 400 years they feel like God has been quiet. For 400 years it has been since Malachi, who was the last prophet that we read of in the Old Testament, says, I will send my messenger who would prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And here's the words that we often hear. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. So in the words of Malachi, he's looking ahead. But since that time, Israel's experienced the fall of the kingdom. They're being spread to the Babylonians, some of them returning to the nation, to, to the city of Jerusalem. Alexander the Great has risen. He's a, uh, brought together the city-states and has conquered the known world. Alexander and the Greeks have now fallen, and the Romans are now the people of power. And so uh, false prophets have come and gone. The Maccabees have tried to revolt in Israel and, and have tried to 
create a, a holy nation again. They've been crushed. And so now Israel waits and hopes. And as they do so, they're ruled by the false king Herod, who is only in his position because Caesar allows him to be. See, folks, I think we have to understand the Scripture and what is happening in the time before Jesus was born for us to understand what God is doing. Because Israel's waiting. And as they waited, they did not know that the one who was coming, that they were waiting for was coming. They were hopeless. It's almost like the song, they were in a bleak midwinter. They were in a bleak in between. They were in a time when it was hard for them to see hope, to think of hope, to look ahead of hope, for hope. They didn't know that it would be in one of the smallest towns that God would deliver the greatest news. It would be in Nazareth that God, the angel Gabriel would come to a young woman named Mary. Mary was the daughter of a man named Joachim and a woman named Anna, but other than that, we don't know much about her except for her role in being the mother of Jesus. It was to Mary that the angel Gabriel appeared. Now, if you go and look in the Gospels, there's only uh, three biblical passages that are attributed to the angel Gabriel appearing to, to a man or a woman. In the book of Daniel, you can read about the angel Gabriel. In fact, they say that, you know, some uh, biblical scholars say that when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the uh, fiery furnace, that the angel Gabriel was there with them to keep them from being burned. Uh, they also say the angel Gabriel could have been with Daniel when he was thrown into the lion's den. But in this time, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary after he's already appeared to Zechariah in the temple. And so Mary is in whatever room and the angel Gabriel appears to her. I think it's important for us to remember that this is God's plan being worked out. This is not a spontaneous decision of God sending an angel. This is not God deciding on a whim that this should happen. This is not God's decision, or this is God's decision in enacting a plan. And in deciding that what he has planned and what he has uh, set in motion in the Garden of Eden will come to fruition in the angel's appearance to Mary and in the child that she is going to bear. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to come. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times before your sake. Jesus was chosen before the world was ever created to redeem us. Paul wrote to the Galatians that when the fullness of time had come, when, when all fullness had come, God acted and sending a rescuer. And that rescuer was the one that was going to come, and it was the one that had been promised in the beginning. And what Paul means by that is that in Jesus, the rescuer, the one that would uh, redeem all of the people, was the fulfillment of Genesis 12, where God appears to Abraham as he looks at the scars in the sky, and he says, look at the stars in the sky. Uh, your descendants will be as many as them. And through your descendants, I will bless the world. God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise from Genesis 12. This is God's plan. 
So when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says to her, Do not be afraid, you have found favor with God. You will be a child and you will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary says, how can this be? I think this is a how can this be like she's not doubting that what God is doing cannot happen but she wonders that how she can be with child she knows what she has or has not done but she also knows that it's through the power and presence of God it's only through the power and presence of God that what the angel has told her can be fulfilled because see with God it's possible with God, it is possible that salvation would be offered to all people in the person of Jesus. With God, it is possible that a baby born to a young woman who lived in a small town called Nazareth would bring salvation to all people. Salvation comes to us in the person of Jesus. This world, if you think about it, we work so hard to find salvation in so many other things except Jesus. It's our sinfulness, it's our pride, it's, it's everything that causes us to look everywhere else except for the manger and except on the cross and except in the empty tomb to find salvation. We look for salvation in possessions, in, in power, in medicine, in money, in self-improvement, in politics, in knowledge, whatever it is. We even look for salvation in the act of being re religious without having a relationship with Jesus Christ. But friends, for us to truly receive salvation, we have to be in Jesus. For us to receive salvation, we can only receive it from Him. We need the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. We need the Holy Spirit to make us new. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the new life that comes only through us asking for it from God through Jesus Christ. After the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, what did she say? She said, yes. And then she said to her, her, her cousin, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary said yes. She said yes to God giving her this opportunity. Yes to God using her in this amazing way. Yes to God in, in not even knowing what, what the future was going to hold. She doesn't know what's going to come, and she doesn't know what's going to happen to Jesus. But she said yes to salvation coming to all God's people. God's blessing and God's promise that's offered to all of us. See, friends, this is the same yes that we're allowed to respond to God and that he offers us about his son Jesus. Yes, in allowing him to alter the plans that we have for ourselves. Yes, to humbling ourselves in the direction that we are taking. Yes, to trusting God completely and allowing him to put us on a completely different path. Mary said yes. And because she did, she was offered the same life that you and I have been offered by God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died for her sins just like he died for ours. And through his resurrection, 
she too was offered the same promise of everlasting life that you and I have received. And we receive all of these things by saying yes. Yes to God, yes to Jesus, and yes to life that He offers us through His Son. Amen.